0: And let's pray. Father, open our hearts to hear your good word to us and help us to learn the lessons that we have before us in the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sermon about uh, God's kingdom and how he exercises authority. I don't know if you've heard of the fellow Lord Acton. He's famous really for one thing. A famous line he wrote in a letter um, to a guy called Mandel Crichton. He wrote it in 1887 and he said, Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Daniel 4 is a story illustrating how power corrupts and how sanity can be restored after this corruption. It's a story about the need for human beings to acknowledge God's kingdom above all kingdoms and above each one of us individually. It's a story about how God humbles the proud to bring them to a better mind. Today I want to look at the story firstly and then draw some lessons out. The story of Daniel 4 is the story of God's decree against a tree. It rhymes. Our tyrannical friend, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian Empire, has again disturbing dreams. If you were here a few weeks ago in Daniel 2, he had had dreams already. And again, Daniel, the Judean captive and exile, who was serving in the Babylonian court, is called in to interpret the dream. And the dream has two elements. The first one is a tree. I looked, says Nebuchadnezzar, in a bit we didn't hear read, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it The wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Daniel says of this, Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. There is something great and good about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, its structures, its order, which provide stability so that plenty can arise. But secondly, in the dream, there is a decree. Your Majesty, says Daniel, your Majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, then this doesn't sound too good for him, does it? And Daniel doesn't sugarcoat it. In verse 24, this is the interpretation. Your Majesty, this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. So the king, the most kind of exalted and godlike of mortals, shall become an outcast. He shall fall right to the bottom of the heap and like a beast live in the wild. But there is some hope. There is some consolation. Daniel says seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And gives them to anyone he wishes. Command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So this is not a final divine judgment, but a kind of remedial discipline to teach Nebuchadnezzar who really rules in the world. Now Daniel doesn't take this dream in a fatalistic way, as if. Nebuchadnezzar's inevitable future was represented by this dream rather he reads it as a divine warning and so he gives this counsel to Nebuchadnezzar therefore your majesty be pleased to accept my advice renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed it may be then your prosperity will continue well, 12 months, a full year goes by and Nebuchadnezzar it goes on apparently as ever until verse 29, 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And right there, here is the corruption in the heart that power has worked upon Nebuchadnezzar. He has grown proud. He regards himself as the source of his power and his achievements. A note of self-worship sounds in his heart. Whose power is mighty? Mine. Whose glory is majestic? Mine again. This pride is a kind of derangement, a loss of all Perspective and proportion, a corruption that makes the powerful overbearing and entitled, inhumane, unjust and finally cruel. Because they have no doubt that they are right, that they are wise, that they are good and they are deserving. They are favoured by the gods and for good reason. This is the way pride works. They're on the right side of history. That's how they feel. And the discipline measured out for this derangement of Nebuchadnezzar's heart is a derangement of his life and his mind. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar's restoration comes when he raises his eyes heavenward, when he looks up to God and his words of praise are not for himself but for God. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And God restores more than Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, my nobles and advisers sought me out, he says, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. All of this, Nebuchadnezzar credits to God. And he regards it as a good act of God and a reason to praise God, in fact, all that's happened to him. Now I, says Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's the story. Let's draw out some lessons. Firstly, God's power is the uncorrupted, uncorruptible and absolute power that is beyond all human holders of power. Lord Acton, who said absolute power corrupts absolutely, was a good Catholic. He actually said that in the context of arguing against the emerging doctrine of papal infallibility. He didn't want the Pope to be infallible because he thought it would be corrupting. But he did not mean that this was true of God. For God's power is absolute. As Nebuchadnezzar says, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one could hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? But God is without corruption. And he uses his power to correct and to reform the erring. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The claim here is that when God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth, he also does what is right and all his ways are just. Now there might be plenty that makes you or others you know doubt this. How did Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, feel when he was in the midst of this, when he was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox? Was he praising God then? Was he feeling like all is well with the world? God is dealing with me justly and rightly. I read an article in a Christian journal this week called My Madness. The author has suffered for 32 years from schizoaffective disorder, which is a double whammy of both schizophrenia and manic depression. His brother had this too, and the author of the article writes, "'No one can fathom the crushing power of schizophrenia, the strength of its grip, unless it has you by the throat. I did not appreciate my brother's struggle until I went mad myself. However well the medication works, however well you negotiate everyday life, your mind is no longer your own. Darkness never leaves you. Now his experiences and those he saw others experience, they appalled him. And he says, for me, the temptation was strong to embrace the nihilistic outrage of Ivan Karamazov at the suffering of innocent children and to give back my entrance ticket to this unholy creation. At one time, he says, he spent the better part of three years writing an unpublishable novel called bad as God, because, he says, the God I knew was a bad dude. Despite this, somehow he decided to go back to church, and he says, I took to reading the Bible intently, and, he says, it was in the New Testament that I found my best solace. Christ truly was my comforter and my refuge against confusion. This did not mean for him that his madness had departed, leaving only joy in God. He writes at the end, it's an odd life, straddling two worlds, either of which may seem unreal at a given moment. To suffer schizophrenia is to be born again into a reality stranger and more excruciating than anything you could imagine while sane. But, One can get used to almost anything and still cherish one's life, however it may hurt. I still know at times the living presence of a good and generous God who is mindful of my pain and wants me to overcome it. And in less agreeable times, I rely on the pagan resolution of Goethe, who suggests avoiding the belief that you have been singled out by the gods for special attention. This man's name is Algis Valunius and his story has not come to the kind of clean conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar's story comes to in Daniel 4. And perhaps it won't be until the resurrection of the dead that his mind is returned to full health and wholeness. But in the meantime, He has found his best solace, he says, in the New Testament, and his comfort and refuge from confusion is in Christ. And so we do well to recognise that God does and should rule our worlds. It's a kind of derangement to imagine otherwise, and particularly to imagine that your life is down to your hard work to your good judgment, to your virtue and your general deservingness. Pride, this overinflated sense of yourself, is a kind of self-worship. When you say, it's my strength and goodness that deserve the credit for all I am and all I have and all I've done. This is a corruption of the heart, a delusion that will hurt you and hurt others. Nebuchadnezzar's final words are, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And God does this for the good of the proud. It's better to be humbled than to be proud. Nebuchadnezzar came to humility the hard way. You and I might do well to take an easier route. Let me leave you with the words of the Apostle Peter. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Let's pray.